So I mentioned this morning that we had a two-part lesson, and that was from uh, this morning as it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. And in 2 Samuel 6, we, we see finally uh, the people of Israel interested in the presence of God. David calls for the Ark of the Covenant to come to Jerusalem, and there's this great celebration, great rejoicing. You can imagine the fanfare as the Ark of the Lord is finally going to return. The presence of God has come. And yet in the midst of that, as the oxen stumbles, the cart shakes and Uzzah lays his hand upon the Ark of the Covenant to uh, steady it. And in doing so, God kills him for his irreverence and for his error. And we saw then David ask the question, well, how can the Lord come to me? And for the next three months, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the house of Obed-Edom, as you see in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and in verse 10. And it is interesting that then God is going to have a message for David in the most unusual way. And that is, while the Ark of the Covenant is there in the house of Obed-Edom's house, the messenger tells David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. And so this is an important message that is being told to David that it wasn't just, well, God was breaking out in wrath against you and God was against Israel. That's not the message because the Ark of the Covenant is not causing judgments upon Obed-Edom's house like we saw back in 1 Samuel where every time the Philistines had it in a location, everybody came down with plague and pestilence and difficulties and everybody was trying to get rid of it. Rather than that happening, three months, whatever these blessings are, Obed-Edom and his house are enjoying them. And so that message comes to David and David realizes what we need to do is try this again. Let's try a new approach in bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord, into Jerusalem Itself, And I want you to notice the difference this time. At the end of verse 12, you notice that he goes and he call, brings up the Ark of the Covenant out of the house of Obed-Edom. Notice the city of David is rejoicing. Verse 13, And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. I think there are two things that are interesting to see about what happens this time. First, as we know, the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried. We talked about that this morning. And here we see that now done. This time they're carrying the Ark as it was supposed to happen. But notice also what happens is that as the Ark is being carried, just imagine it, they only take six steps. And then suddenly they stop. And now David offers a sacrifice before the Lord. Before we go any further, we got six steps along. Let's offer a sacrifice to God. Two animals are sacrificed here before the Lord. And I think it is interesting that the big question that we looked at this morning in the first nine verses, which David asked, how can the Lord come to me? It has now been answered. David now grasped. How is the Lord able to come to his people? Number one, sacrifice. There's sacrifice that's needed. 
if God is going to come to his people. And second, there needs to be great care taken by his people. And David now gets that as the three months have gone by, he now realizes we need to do things God's way and we need to offer up our sacrifices to God. And so sacrifice is needed for the Lord to come to his people. Great care is needed for the Lord to come to his people. And that is what is happening here. And you will notice the joy that is being expressed. Verse 14, David is dancing before the Lord in all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You just imagine the celebration. And here is King David and he is celebrating and dancing and praising God. The ram's horns are being played. The people are singing. And it sounds like everybody is involved. All of Israel, all of Jerusalem, praising God at this moment. You might have noticed an interesting description about David. Because notice not only did he offer a sacrifice, but did you notice what he's wearing at this moment is this linen ephod, which the last time we saw somebody doing these things, was actually Samuel. You might remember Samuel would wear this ephod as was described early on in his life. And here he is and he's in the presence of God. And though he's not a priest, he was operating like a priest. And you will know that David, of course, is not a priest. But notice he seems to be functioning like one as he's offering sacrifices, praising God, bringing the presence of God into Jerusalem at this moment. And in the midst of all of this, there is something strange happening. Notice verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in his heart. I want you to notice the contrast because in verse 15, it says that all the house of Israel is shouting. Everybody is down there worshiping and praising and celebrating. And meanwhile, while all of Jerusalem is engaged in this worship, you might remember McCall, that's David's wife. Notice where she's at. It says that she is up in a window looking down upon David and despises David in her heart. I think the description given to her is important right here in verse 16. You will notice that it does not say that she is the wife of David, but rather she is Saul's daughter. Notice that she is being placed in the category of Saul and all that we've seen with Saul and his descendants of all not about the worship of God and praise of God, but about what does this look like? She very much is categorized in a connection to Saul rather than being connected to David and the heart that she had that he has for God. And what she ultimately does then is it says there that she despises David 
for his behavior. The behavior is described already. We read back in verse 14, dancing before the Lord, wearing in linen ephod. Verse 17, they, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one, and then all the people departed and each to his house. If I could do part three, we won't, but... Do you see the messianic implications here as David in bringing the Lord near to Israel is now blessing the people, distributing blessings to them all, distributing goods to them so that all are enjoying this reign of David. The reign of of the anointed has begun and look at all the blessings as they flow. But meanwhile... Verse 20, David goes to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers Himself. (laughs) Here is this moment of joy, celebration. It is a fantastic moment. We mentioned this morning, it's been 50 to 70 years since the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, has come back into the midst of the people. And David is celebrating. The people are celebrating. David is offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, distributing goods, meat, and bread to all the people. And as he comes to now bless his own household, how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, when you talk about what she's driving at, it's important to recognize her concern is not modesty here. It's not that David is running around naked and how dare you, David, be out there where women can see you prancing like that. That's not it. You'll notice by the wording, the things that she says, exactly what the problem is. Notice how it begins there in verse 20. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. That was not very kingly, David. You stripped your royal garments. You set aside your robes and everything of prestige as a king. And are dancing around in a linen ephod. You aren't showing yourself to be kingly. Oh, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. And what you hear her saying is, David, why don't you have some dignity? Why don't you have some honor? Why don't you act like a king? 
How dare you be among the commoners? Here I am up in the window. And we need to have the prestige of being the king and all of the accoutrements that come with that. I don't know, you're down there amongst the female servants dancing before the Lord. I want you to notice his response to this because his response is beautiful. In verse 21, it says that David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. (laughs) Notice his response is very simple. I was in the presence of the Lord And when you are in the presence of the Lord, there's no room for honoring yourself. There's no, well, do you know who I am? Don't you know that I'm the king? Everybody treat me different. Everybody honor me. David says, it was before the presence of the Lord. The Lord who appointed me to be king over Israel instead of your father and instead of his house. I am celebrating before God. And when you celebrate before God and you come into the presence of God, how dare anybody think that they are a somebody When you're in front of him. That's David's answer. In fact, you will notice a point that he makes at the end of verse 22 when he says, you know that when we are more concerned about God's honor, that people will honor that. He speaks of these female servants, these ones that, that McCall, you say, are so contemptible. How, how you dance before their eyes that they saw this. He says, by them, they'll hold me in honor for this. They understand. You don't understand the importance of what has just happened. You are not appreciating the gravity of the presence of God coming into Jerusalem and establishing stuff with his people. But the female servants understand. And I love that he even says, I will make myself even more contemptible than that. If I have to lower myself even further in the presence of God, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. And you will notice that God sides with David in an unusual way. Perhaps I think we've grown accustomed to reading this. Verse 23 And Michal, the daughter of Saul, notice not the wife of David, the daughter of Saul, underscoring this connection, had no child to the day of her death. We've seen that through the book of 1 Samuel, what a shame that was and how that spoke of a a signal of God against somebody. And thus opening Hannah's womb was a blessing when she's able to have the child Samuel. And here the reverse is seen that she then is considered condemned by God and no child is given to her to the day of her death. Let's talk about 
the picture of the anointed and then the important message. Lots of pictures, again, that we see here that we can look at what the anointed is going to do. And we already touched on it a little bit in these offerings and sacrifices and how that's a blessing to the people and distributing to them and giving them what they need as belonging to the kingdom of God. There's certainly that aspect. But I think one of the things that keeps coming up that God is driving at in these books of first and second Samuel is how the anointed is going to be a humble king. That that is just underscored again and again and again. When the anointed arrives, when Christ comes, he will not be like Saul, but he's going to be like David. He's not going to look like a king. He's not going to act like a king. He's not going to walk around saying, don't you know who I am and have all kinds of pretension? He has none of those things when he walks the earth. It is staggering to read the Gospels and just to be impressed at how average and how common he is. Nobody looks at him and goes, oh, look at those kingly robes. You must be somebody. No, in fact, you could push the imagery further and note how David is stripping himself of royalty in the presence of God, just as Philippians 2 describes himself taking those glories and setting them aside and becoming like a servant in human form and dying for us. It's a picture of this humility again and again and again. When you think about the life of Jesus, the only crown you ever see on his head is made out of thorns. We should be stunned by that. There is nothing in him where he goes, don't you know, I'm the king. And the immense irony and shamefulness that the only crown that's ever rested on his head while he's on the earth is one that is twisted together of thorns to make a mockery of the claim. They made that crown of thorns to mock him. Oh, you say you're a king. Let's put this crown on you. Remember, they all pay homage before him and mock him as they do that. And yet with this king, he comes to honor others, to heal others. He helps others. He teaches others. John 13, he even washes disciples' feet. This is the picture that David is exemplifying here. That David is not someone who is just like acting like a king, but rather is doing what is good for his people. And this is the kind of king in Christ that we have. You know the passage well. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross human kings do not act like this David is a special picture right here representing when Christ comes the kind of king that we will have but let's draw our attention to I believe the intended message of this paragraph this morning we talked about how we can be too casual with God We saw that in those first nine verses. 
where oh, we'll just bring God on in and nobody seems to pay attention to the way God wants to be approached. And we talked about then how God is a dangerous God. He is a holy God. He must be approached with sacrifice. He must be approached with great care. David has understood that message. I want us to see now the flip side of that coin and focus in on the contrast between David and the daughter of Saul. Because it is fascinating that the text wants you to see that everybody in Jerusalem, that all of Israel is there on the ground and they are celebrating, they are rejoicing, they are overwhelmed with emotions because the presence of God has returned to Israel. And meanwhile, she is in a window watching it all and despising David and the whole scene. Why is she not overjoyed? Where is her excitement? Where is her desire to celebrate? Why is she not out there worshiping? Why is she not praising God? Why is she not overwhelmed with joy? Why is she not excited to see the Lord return? Why doesn't she want to be out there? with the rest of the people praising, celebrating, and rejoicing. I'll let that question hang in the air a minute and come back to that. But just think about how she's set apart in this text. She's being identified as missing out on all of this, despising the scene that is there. I believe it is important that we understand that God does want our emotions. God does want our hearts. That God wants our excitement. I think we have to be so concerned that, at least it's a concern that I often have, is that sometimes we can have the tendency to communicate that we approach God and we worship God and there is no emotion and there is no excitement. And I understand the concern because there are certainly religious groups and places who manipulate that, who just try to cause a frenzy. And it's not truly from the heart, but just trying to flame things up and get everybody all riled up, not from knowledge and not from desire and not from art, but just because we're going to make a lot of noise and we're going to get people really riled up. We obviously do not worship as a pep rally. It's not the point. But that doesn't mean that there's not an emotion and there's not an excitement. Just because people have emotions that can be false or a manipulative excitement doesn't mean that our worship should not be filled with emotion, that we should not be excited about what we are doing, that we shouldn't be overwhelmed when we are coming into the presence of God. Think about some of the aspects of what we are able to enjoy. That when we pray, we see pictures in scriptures that our words, our prayers 
are considered like this aroma or this smoke that goes into the very throne room of God. That's an overwhelming idea. That the things you say in prayer or the things that you say in your mind to God in prayer are entering to the very throne room of God. Who could not be overwhelmed by that picture? Revelation, just a wonderful picture. The prayers of the saints rising up from the altar into the very presence of God. And the imagery is God responding back with thunders and sounds and lightning as God responds to the prayers of His people. When we sing that we are taking this opportunity to praise the Lord who saved us, who has rescued us, who's given us hope, who has changed our lives, who has given us the hope of eternity, that there is no fear of death. We are singing to the very God who has accomplished this in our lives. When we read the word of God, how could we ever be bored Or be down and seeing what God has revealed to us. The very words of God. When we take the Lord's Supper. It's a time of conviction. It's a time of celebration. I've always noted to you. I think that the Lord's Supper has this intended double connection to our souls. Because on the one hand, taking the bread is a reminder of the sacrifice, the agony, the body that was given. How can we not be pricked in the heart to sadness to consider what he endured? And yet, then you come to the fruit of the vine, which is a representation of the covenant that was established, which then frees us from our sins. And there's joy on that end of it. It It's an amazing picture of, oh, look at what God has done. But, oh, look at what God has done. How could we ever remove the excitement or the emotion and not be overwhelmed when we are able to worship God like this? Which means that when we worship God, it requires to to have engaged hearts. It is a requirement of asking us to have engaged hearts. God wants praise and worship that comes from sincere hearts, not from hearts that are removed, looking out a window, watching it all as it goes on. I hope you see what is interesting in this picture is that worship isn't watching. She's not a part of this. She's sitting there watching it all go by. But worship is not something you watch. Worship is something that requires participation. It is the participation of mind. It is the participation of heart. It is the participation of body. It is not something that is outside of ourselves like we see of David's wife, daughter of Saul, watching it all go on in front of her. You are either engaged and that is worship or it's not worship at all. And unfortunately, she had removed herself from that. It's a very warning that we see Jesus giving 
As he quoted from Isaiah 29, when God warned Israel, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There is a way to look the part, say the words, look sincere, and your heart be so far from God. That in worship, God wants hearts that are engaged in prayer, the study of God's Word, and the Lord's Supper, in singing. These things are not just things to do, but require the full participation of our very being. But as I said, I'd be remiss to not get to the heart of the problem. Because I could just say, so we need to make sure that we worship with the heart. True, good, yes. But why isn't she out there celebrating? I left that question hanging for you a few minutes ago. Why isn't she overwhelmed? Why isn't she celebrating? Why isn't she out there with David and the rest of Israel? Why is she in a window looking down upon all of this, despising it all in her heart? Why is that happening? I think the answer is evident. She just doesn't care about the presence of God. It didn't move her that the Ark of the Covenant that represented God Himself came into the city. She didn't care. It didn't mean anything to her. And I think it is important to consider that if you just don't love worship, it is an indication that there's a heart problem. Because it's either celebrating before God like you see David doing and all of Israel doing. Or it's a picture like David's wife who doesn't care about God, who doesn't care what God has done. She is unmoved by God coming back to His people. And so there is no joy. And because there's no emotion and no joy and no excitement and no overwhelming Because of who God is and what He's done, she stays in the window and just watches from afar. It truly does represent two different hearts. I would say it like this. With David, he's all in. And with McCall, she is completely out. (laughs) It's just a staggering contrast. David doesn't care about what it looks like. He's going to worship God. And all that she cares about is what it looks like. And wanting to be honored before the people. I'll say it this way. If we don't have the excitement, the overwhelming joy, the emotion, the connection in our worship. It's not that there's something wrong with God. And it's not that there's something wrong with His Word 
or there's not something wrong with the worship. I feel like those are the three areas that often get attacked. Well, I just didn't get anything out of it so that, you know, God just doesn't really do it for me. Or, you know, the, 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 his word just is kind of boring and, and dry or the worship was just really ho-hum and, and well, it wasn't that great, a, you know, as if it's an entertainment or a performance or something. And so that's why I wasn't connected. And I, I got to have that kind of frenzy. But I want us just to think for a minute. It's not that there's something wrong with God. It's not that there's something wrong with His Word. It's not that there's something wrong with the way that God has asked for us to worship. It's that we are not appreciating the presence of God. We're like Michael. Where she's just like... It doesn't matter. I want to end by just simply having it put in our minds this way. We must look and see if there is something that is blocking us from experiencing God in a way that truly loves and appreciates Him, that is filled with emotion, that connects to the heart, that is displayed in an excitement in our lives that we want to be in the presence of God and we desire to worship Him because it's the best thing that we could do short of being in the very presence of God Himself in eternity. There's something blocking that joy if we don't have that. It's not God, it's not His Word, it's not His worship. There's something in our lives. There's something that's the hindrance. Only you can answer what it is. But it may be like what we see in the seven churches of Asia where we see the Lord Jesus addressing the church at Ephesus and just saying, you don't have the love that you had at first. You've left that. What happened to the fire? What happened to the zeal? What happened to the intensity? And it is so easy to allow the system and organization of worship to move us into just habit and ritual rather than taking advantage of every moment when we are praying, singing, Lord's Supper memorial, reading God's Word, to really engage the heart every single time. We have to ask ourselves, is worship an obligation, a requirement? That's why I resist the terminology you have to go to church. There's so much wrong with that sentence. <laughs> There's so many things that are faulty in that declaration. Or is it just our burning desire to think about the moments when we can be together and enjoy praising Him? What a difference. You can be too casual. You can be too cold. Two things in the very same text. In attempting to bring the presence of God into Jerusalem. Don't be casual with him. He's a dangerous and holy God.
but don't be cold with him. He wants your heart. He wants your very being. He doesn't want externals. He wants everything that you can give him. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it's certainly sometimes easy to allow things that are repetitive to cause us not to engage hearts and minds. And Lord, we pray that we are not allowing our worship, our time with you, our prayer life, our song life, our praise life, our study life to just become mundane or out of obligation and responsibility. And God, forgive us for the times that we have offered to you heartless or mindless worship. We know you want us engaged. Lord, we know you want our hearts. We know you want our excitement. We know you want us to be overwhelmed by what you've done for us. Please keep those overwhelming things fresh in our hearts, Lord. Help us to never grow tired of looking at the beauty of you, the beauty of your son, the beauty of his sacrifice, the beauty of what we receive because of this kingdom that has been established through your son, the anointed. God, forgive us for when we failed at that. God, I pray that if our, if our hearts have had the fire turned down, or we've lost that excitement, that, Lord, you would help us fan the flames, that you would stir us up, Lord, to excite us in your word, to excite us in your worship, to excite us in living for you. Put that fire in us, Lord. Fan the flames in us and let those coals never grow cold. And Lord, we pray that in the days ahead, our zeal for you would be ever stronger and ever growing than they ever have been in the past. Lord, help us to be more like your servant David and not stand afar off watching the things that are going on. As we worship you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's why I wanted to do those back-to-back, because that is just an amazing text. An amazing text of the ability to be in the presence of God. We noted this evening two things needed for God to come to us. God did the first thing. He made the sacrifice. So that we can come near to him. He also did the second thing. He told you what you need to do. To approach him with care. To approach him with your heart. To approach him in a way that is honorable before him. We want you to do that tonight. And we can help you respond to God's invitation. Of the forgiveness of sins. Of salvation eternal life. We want to give that to you now. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing.